So this is from the beginning of the first chapter, and it's called Adventure versus Wolf. It was winter when she crossed. Maybe she found a bridge of ice. Maybe she snuck across Brownlee Dam. Or maybe there was only current. Maybe she just swam. At the depths of Hell's Canyon, the river that separates Idaho and Oregon is milky and knotted with rapids. At one end, over the reservoirs just south of the dam, the water is nearly a mile wide. The wolf would have chosen her path carefully. She did not flirt with risk, not like a coyote. She knew what she could do. A wolf can swim up to eight miles at a time, paddling like a dog after a stick, the skin between her toes, enough webbing to help push her through a current. The snake is the largest tributary to the Columbia River, its waters an echo of the agriculture. It has slipped through, heading west from Wyoming. The wolf could not know it, but all through the river there were traces of cow, fertilizer, sediment, manure. Water that had once been blue was now often sea glass green with algae. It was 1999, and the wolf was in the belly of Hell's Canyon, the deepest gorge in North America, 2,000 feet deeper in some places than the Grand Canyon. From the sprawling plateaus and high pastures above, the canyon feels unfathomable, as if the northeastern border of Oregon has just unzipped rocky, sagebrush-strewn cliffs to reveal a world over a mile deep beneath mud-slick layers of limestone and lava. 300 million year old products of underwater volcanoes. This is the homeland of the Nez Perce, the Nimipu, who knew the canyon as a place of shelter carved by coyote. Their stories tell how Creator made Rai Coyote the teacher of human beings, but the wolf, He Min, belonged her too. This was her land. When white men appeared, those who would later hunt the region's wolves all the way to extinction, they had taken the same route, and the Nez Perce had named them for it. Suyapu, they called the invaders, across the water people. Now, as the wolf shook the river from her back, droplets constellated in the frozen air. She was a yearling, nearly full-grown, the runt of her litter, almost waist-high on a grown man, her weight around 65 pounds, her coat the gradient of stone, the color, perhaps, of that day's January sky. Her winter under fur was so thick the cold did not even reach her bones. She was a descendant of the Canadian wolves reintroduced to Idaho just a couple of years earlier as part of an effort to restore the American gray wolf populations that had been slaughtered to extinction in the early 20th century. Around her neck, the radio collar given by the Idaho Department of Fish and Wildlife was a dull and nearly forgotten weight. B-45, that's what they were calling her, the 45th wolf to be collared in Idaho, one node of a federal wolf recovery program that the Nez Perce tribe was working to help implement. With each step, her saucer-sized paws splintered the lattice of icy crystals that frosted the earth. Turning tail to the river, she climbed into the snow and the vanilla-scented air of hundred-year-old ponderosa pines. If a bald eagle cut the sky above her, she heard it. If a rabbit threw itself into a snowy burrow, she smelled it. A wolf can average eight to ten hours a day of travel, often moving in the seams between day and night. Ten miles, twenty, thirty, forty more. She'd left her family in east-central Idaho to look for the three things any young wolf needs to survive. A mate, a meal, and defensible territory. But she did not know that in climbing onto this far shore of the Snake River, she had crossed a border. Not just a state line, but a line of history. 
Because she'd been fitted a year earlier with her collar, her movements were legible to humans, and she was now superlative, the first known member of her species to step into Oregon in over 50 years. As in much of continental America, wolves had not lived here since the state's last wolf bounty was paid to a trapper in the 1940s. When B-45 arrived, she came as both the dawn of the future and a relic from the past. B-45 seems to me a title ill-suited for a majestic animal and more appropriate for a chemical used to color breakfast cereal, wrote one skeptical editor of an Eastern Oregon newspaper. When the Nez Perce tribe and an environmental conservation group held a contest to name her, Freedom One, a local conservationist, began to call her Eve. You're listening to Stories, Poems, Music from the Creative Process. To hear our full interview with author Erica Berry, visit the Creative Process Arts, Culture and Society podcast. This series is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Thanks for listening. Music